You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of philosophy, history, and accounting at the University of Southern California, as well as a recipient of the prestigious MacArthur Fellowship. Holding a PhD from Cambridge University, he's a regular contributor to the New York Times, Politico, The New Republic, PBS, Salon.com, and The Chronicle of Higher Education. His latest book is titled Free Market, The History of an Idea. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Jacob Soul. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. I am a historian of philosophy and ideas and politics. And I, what really interests me is always to do what I would call a genealogy of something. You get an idea and you follow it backwards. And one of the most sort of fulfilling and interesting things about that is it takes you on a ride that you just don't expect. You let the sources guide you through a kind of tour. I mean, I, I, as a historian, we say a tour amongst the dead, right? Amongst people who aren't here anymore and their ideas. And you find stuff you don't expect. And it's like that kind of scene in Indiana Jones where he breaks into that giant chamber and you find these things, you know, all these amazing treasures. And so I love taking an idea from the present and just following it backwards. And I think it's uh, incredibly fulfilling and that's why I love doing what I do. Okay. Um, so your latest book is titled Free Market, The History of an Idea. Um, it's, it's an incredibly ambitious theoretical project. Um, so I wanted to start where you start in the book, which is with Cicero. Um, so when most people think about the history of the free market, they probably think Adam Smith, but you start about two millennia earlier. So can you tell us a bit about what you call this dream of Cicero and why you start the book there? I mean, you, you, you got it. Um, Smith is a Ciceronian. That's his job. He's a moral philosopher. And to be a moral philosopher in the 18th century meant that you were so imbued with Ciceronian philosophy and morals that it guided your whole life. And so I thought, well, if Adam Smith, if Cicero was so important to Smith, there must have been a reason. And one thing that happened is I, so I went back and I did what Smith would do. I read an enormous amount of Cicero. I'm looking at my stack of Cicero, which I loved. I mean, it's just, I recommend it to everyone. You don't have to agree with Cicero on everything, but it's just, I found it incredibly fulfilling and rewarding. Um, and one of the things that struck me first was that, um, I would come, Smith didn't use footnotes, which makes him hard, which makes, you know, that's why we still argue about Smith. He's hard to, to, to nail down in many ways, but I kept finding passages from Smith that were not verbatim, but they were, they were paraphrased from Cicero. Cicero's running through the whole thing, um, of all of his works. Um, and I've read all of Smith's works, which you, I think one really has to do to understand Smith. And so I went back to where Smith starts. Um, well, Smith also starts with skeptical and Stoic philosophers. And so I went back to all of these people that were in Smith's library that Smith does mention in his work. And I sort of went all the way back there and then sort of worked my way forward. And I found that Cicero was sort of until John Stuart Mill, and he's the sort of last free market thinker to really show that he's inspired in many ways by Cicero, that free market thought had deep roots in Cicero and that early free market thinkers really saw Cicero as the 
basis of their thought. And so it wasn't my idea. That was what I mean by just going back and doing a genealogy and seeing what you find. And Cicero was everywhere. It was really an amazing experience. Yeah, I think I think uh, one thing that people forget about Adam Smith is that it's not just, I mean, all, all the record that you hear is about the wealth of nations, but before that was the theory of moral sentiments, and, and he was a moral philosopher, um, first and foremost. So, you know, just, just things about Adam Smith that, that most people don't really remember. Um, but, well, I mean, we'll, we'll get to that later. Um, but first, I wanted to, to ask about this, sort of this, this bit you talk about in the book, which is the role of Christianity. Um, so, among other things, you talk about how prices were set not only based on market forces, but also on moral considerations. And you also also touch on sort of the ascetic tendencies of early Christians, the, the obsession with poverty. Um, so, can you tell us a bit about how morality and Christianity, these sorts of ideas, affected um, the markets and the development of capitalism? Well, there's sort of, there are two, I mean, I, I, there are a lot of answers to that. That's a big question. Um, but there are sort of two things that I would sort of focus on. One is that early Christianity, so the first 400 years, is really focused on the idea of making um, an exchange for salvation. And that exchange meant giving up wealth and earthly pleasure for salvation. And the early thinkers of the church, the fathers of the church, usually put that into commercial terms. And one of the reasons they were doing that is they were evangelicals. They were trying to get people who were not Christians to become Christians. And many of those fathers of the church, by the way, had begun their lives either as professors of Ciceronian thought, such as St. Augustine, or were just taught the Ciceronian canon, such as St. Ambrose. But everybody read Cicero in the ancient world. In fact, I read an amazing thing that if you went into a Roman bookstore in 400 AD, you'd still see Cicero on the front table. <laughs> I think that's like such an amazing image, isn't it? Um, and so, um, but so what happens is, is Cicero talked about exchange being disinterested and between friends who love each other. And love meant deep, the deep respect and trust of friendship and caring. So Cicero didn't believe that anyone should ever make an exchange unless they did so for love and with friendship. And that's a, quite a thought. And he thought that that's what would keep a market running, was disinterested exchange between close people. He meant a senatorial elite. But he believed that that exchange would then be, um, you know, it would be, uh, uh, it would be self-propelling, that it would just constantly keep the Roman economy going if people exchanged in this moral good way. Christian thinkers take that. They're very aware of Cicero. And they say, look, the real exchange you want to make is not between humans, but between you and God. And one of the things you need to trade is your desire. So all desires on earth for things and for love. And many Christian thinkers, I mean, one Christian, one of the greatest fathers of the church castrates himself. Um, others say you shouldn't even have children because it becomes, you know, takes you away from God. I mean, there's a lot of ascetic idea and you should really give everything away that you have. St. Ambrose was a phenomenally rich uh, aristocrat, he gave everything away. So did his sister. Um, and the idea was, is you would give everything away for the treasure of heaven. And this is a sort of remarkable idea. And St. Augustine uses the term, the invisible hand, that once you did that, God would guide you towards salvation. And I found that to be quite remarkable. In the Middle Ages, it becomes a different focus. The Franciscans are the sort of heirs of this idea of poverty from late antiquity. And they believe that they have to take a vow 
of total poverty. Other members of the church and other orders don't believe that. For example, um, um, Thomas of Aquinas, um, he uh, doesn't believe that you can do it. He thinks it's a dangerous vow to make because it's impossible to give up all earthly goods. But the Franciscans hold to it. And what happens, and I think this is amazing, is because they're so concerned about making a mortal sin through owning something or through being involved with an exchange that is not for purely spiritual reasons. So for example, if they were to buy a book or if someone, I don't think Franciscans could really buy things. If someone would give them a book or a, a coat, these are like really serious questions. They'd have to show that the book was going to be used for spiritual teaching and that the coat was absolutely necessary for survival. They couldn't own anything beyond that. So what they started doing was looking into how prices and values were created. And they were some of the first, I would actually say, the first sophisticated thinkers of market valuation. So what they thought was that the value of something was related to its use was related to how you know to how much there was of it but also to what went into it so they said look if a merchant does something the the thing that they have is not just the value of the thing which is a very medieval idea that something just has a value like a piece of bread the franciscans say no merchants had to go search out let's say for i don't know a piece of wool the merchant would have to search out the piece of wool. The wool would have to be made. It would have to be shipped. There would actually have to be financial transactions. That involved risk, involved capital investment. They started putting all that into um, pricing and to valuation. And that's amazing. So they basically were looking at market forces, whether it be quantity or skill and scarcity and expertise, all of that went into pricing. It's incredibly visionary to understand that you couldn't just put a price on something, that the market actually creates value through all these different elements. Yeah, and, and there's sort of an interesting thing you touched on there as well, which is sort of the, the acidic um, uh, lifestyle or, or principles that, that early Christians tried to live by. I think that's that's something that that permeated, you know, the 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 Christian tradition of the Catholic Church, you know, well into sort of the the 14th, 15th centuries as well. Um, you know, when sort of the the selling of indulgences, um, right. the the Catholic Church will, were, you know, it's it's effectively sort of the principle. I, I think sounds very similar, where you give up your your wealth or your money today in, in exchange for salvation. Um, Pope Urban the second, ten ninety five, famously offered to um, remit the penance of all the people who participated in the Crusades and and confessed their sins. Um, so so these sorts of ideas of giving up your your worldly your worldly goods, your your worldly pleasures, um, your money for for salvation in the afterlife um is is you know it, it's not just something that i think was was early christian but that's that's something that you know right. was a, a theme all throughout um the catholic church well into the middle ages can i just make one note about that and this is something that saint augustine and all the fathers of the church are very clear on they would not have approved of indulgences because they believed it had to be something that was a deep uh it was a deep act of belief so that you didn't buy an indulgence. You actually had to give your money to the poor. Or Augustine felt that in places where the church was struggling, 
You needed to give it to the church so the church could help people find salvation. But it couldn't just be done on a whim. The, 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 the true desire of poverty and the true desire for non-material salvation was absolutely key, where salvation was key on what was in your heart. And that's a big question with Martin Luther and indulgences too. So um, their idea, indulgences became a kind of church industry later on. Um, but this idea of giving your wealth away by good faith and love, by the way, and Cicero comes back, Cicero is always paralleling with the Christian tradition as a moralist. He doesn't disappear uh, in the Middle Ages. And so this idea of giving for love is really key, but it's not the love of another person. It's the love of God. Okay. Um, so next I wanted to, to sort of get an overview of the next part of the book, um, which is, I mean, there's, there's a lot here, but the, the development of free markets between the end of the Middle Ages and the Adam Smith era. So you go over a few chapters in this book from mercantilism in England and the Netherlands to John Baptiste Colbert and Louis XIV. So we don't have time to go through each of these chapters individually. And I know this is sort of a broad question, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to give us sort of a brief overview of how markets evolved and developed over these 200 years or so uh, alongside the role of the state. Okay, well, this has been a big question for historians. There's this idea that there's free market thought on the one hand, and there's mercantilism, which is state, full state involvement and control over the market with an eye to hoarding a limited amount of bullion. That's a quick definition modern definition, because mercantilism never existed. There was no term for it. What happens is, is that economic historians see the economic thought of the period from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment, or the Renaissance to the late 17th century when free market thought, as we sort of know it, um, emerges as a period without systematic thinking, uh, economic thinking. That means that people don't see a market a pure market system. And if you read all the literature, there's a lot of confusion. They'll call many of the authors hybrid thinkers because they're partially mercantilist, again, which is a modern term, partially market thinkers, or that they're not market thinkers and they're all mercantilist thinkers, but they're always struggling with them. They don't know what to call them. What became clear to me was that they actually agreed on a lot of things. And the most important thing they agreed on is that many of them, even people from semi-absolutist states. And actually, England was pretty absolutist too. I mean, it wasn't, it's not like England was this super liberal place before um, 1688. Even then, it was not so liberal, even in the 18th century in Smith's time. Um, it turns out that these visionaries, and I think they're visionaries, believed, most of them said that ideally, it would be really good to trade freely without the state involved. However, they felt that their markets were too fragile. And this is coming early from Holland, which becomes the most advanced economy at the end of the 16th century. I would say in the world, the most sophisticated economy. It's not as rich as um, India or China, but it is, it is a mercantile economy that's really sophisticated. They use protectionism. They use some subsidies. They get to a point, and the state oversees their companies. These are the real, with the Italian people in the Middle Ages, these are the sort of other inventors of capitalism. So what I started to see was that there was this development phase of markets where you had people that wanted freedoms, but in order to get to them, they needed the help of the state. And that gives us these incredible works, which always make me sort of chuckle by Thomas Misselden um, and Thomas Munn that are, you know, 
they sort of say, you know, we need free tr- freedom of trade by means of the state. It's something that Misseldon sort of says. And his, his idea is that if England needs free trade, but Holland's too powerful, so the state needs to help the English market evolve by protecting certain parts of British industry, for example, shipping, until it can compete with the Dutch, because the Dutch are so dominant that they'll overwhelm anyone's shipping industry, which is sort of the main international industry of the time, shipping various things. Um, the French have this idea, and the French write very eloquently and say, look, the Dutch use all these protectionist practices. They limit who can trade in certain cities, they kick foreigners out. They, um, the government oversees their main company, the, the Dutch East India Company. It's not fair. So we need to create, and this is Colbert's idea, we need to build our market so that we can get market symmetry so that they don't just overwhelm us. Colbert says, I don't think we can beat the Dutch. They're so good at this, but I think we can begin to compete fairly. And he says, ideally, that would be free. And this is even more interesting. I I find this so fascinating because here's a guy with a country whose economy is generally wrecked and agrarian trying to compete with an industrialized, highly advanced mercantile state. Um, And what he says, one of the reasons that the Dutch always beat us and the English, who are not that advanced, also beat us is they write better trade treaties than we do, always favoring themselves. I want to create a whole diplomatic core with mercantile knowledge so that not only can I get or can the country of France get its industries up to par to be symmetrically competitive, but that we can write top-notch trade treaties so that we can trade freely but fairly. I think that's incredibly visionary. Whether one likes Colbert or not, there's all this new work on his diplomatic uh, work, and I think it needs to be mixed in with a history of trade treaties. I think they're super, super interesting topic and helps us understand the history of markets and how they work. Yeah, I mean, obviously, a, a lot of developments in this era, um, you know, from sort of this, this mercantile thinking, I think that's that's sort of the the precursor to, to colonialism, joint stock corporations, so, so many developments that we associate with with modern markets um, come come from this time period. Um, but then that brings us sort of to the, the, the really the, the, the crux of this um, book, um, or, or the crux of where, you know, modern free markets really, really kick off, which is, I think, with Adam Smith. Um, so you write the quote, if there is one clear idea to take away from Smith's work, it is that morality is essential for the market to function. So this sort of, for me, harkens back to the to Das Adam Smith problem about how Smith's idea of self-interest as the organizing principle of economic activity fits in with his wider moral and ethical concerns. Um, so can you tell us a bit about how you see Smith's ideas actually reflected or, or not reflected in the modern economy? Well, I just wanted to note, free market thinkers really hark back to the late 17th century or throughout the 18th century, and they inspire Smith. And by the way, Smith's also fascinated by Colbert. Colbert is one of the, the the protagonists in the uh, Wealth of Nations. Smith hates Louis the Fourteenth, but Colbert, he says Colbert makes makes mistakes, but he also admires him. And it was the historian Emma Rothschild who, fifteen years ago, told me you need to look into this. And that's partially where this book came from. Um, and this is part of also these other Smith questions and problems. What does Smith really think? And his thought is so complex that. You know, there are paradoxes and he's interested in paradoxes too, like somebody like Colbert. But the Smith morality problem, I, to read Smith, 
and Smith expected one to do this. First of all, you had to know your Cicero. <laughs> you had to know your Greeks and your Roman Stoic philosophers, okay? Um, he also did expect people to read the theory of moral sentiments, his work of moral philosophy, along with the wealth of nations. But I do recommend, even though it's 1,200 pages, that everyone goes back and reads The Wealth of Nations. It is a big, complex book. In it, Smith does not say that greed is good. Smith says that certain people in society are just going to be driven by their economic interests, um, the book, the butcher, the baker, etc. At the end of the day, they're going to be looking at their bottom line. If you look at his invisible hand section, it's very interesting. One of the things he, he Smith speaks quite negatively about merchants and companies. He doesn't trust them. He thinks they operate by a dangerous level of self-interest. What I believe the invisible hand is, according to Smith, and I think it's pretty clear in the book, is it's society, that society will help uh, these merchants make more moral choices. And for him, that moral choice, and this is really particular, means investing money back into agriculture, which he believes brings a more moral economy, but also investing back into the nation. He's very concerned with international investment away from the home country. He's for investing in the empire, but not into foreign countries. So Smith is somewhat of an economic nationalist, and he really worries about not only monopolies, but foreign investment for personal greed. And what he hopes is that a landowning elite that gets their money from agriculture, which he thinks is inherently more moral than trade, will push trade. If this elite works in parliament and, and leads morally, will be that hand which brings commerce back towards the nation and back towards what he believes is the common good of agriculture. Now, I know that's a complicated bunch of stuff, but if you read Smith, you will see that. Um, he talks a lot about this, and the citations are all in my book, and I try to make the footnotes clear so that you could go back and see for yourself what Smith thinks. Don't just take it from me. I think that's very, very important. And so I have really heavy footnotes in there for the reader to go engage with Smith. Now, you know, you might say, wow, that sounds really weird. Well, it's a different time period. It's the 18th century and people thought differently. It was a different social system. And Smith was from a family of landowners. He was a professor of liberal arts and also a tax collector, but he was very much connected to this agrarian elite and he believed in them and saw them as these people that could be um, disinterested in that Ciceronian sense from immediate profit and greed and could step away and help all this new commerce and industry be better for the nation and be more moral. I don't know if that's too much of a complicated answer, but that's kind of, that's my sort of, you know, summary of Smith. And I spent years on it working with Smith scholars and reading work about Smith and reading all of Smith's work to sort of get to that sort of boiled down summary. <laughs> I hope it's not too much. Yeah, and, and sort of the one thing that's that stood out to me in in all the the, the Adam Smith that I've read is, is sort of the role that that the institutions play. Um, not not necessarily the state um, as as an entity, but but the institutions. Um, so you know, be, the, you, you the one thing um, you hear a lot about when when you hear about Adam Smith is this idea of the invisible hand. Um, you know, of, of market forces that that make everyone better off through through market transactions. Um, 
the one thing that that he makes clear is that this has to op- this has to happen within um you know this w- within rule of law within within um solid institutions that that can um you know enforce enforce a lot of these um that they can you know enforce free trade and, and free activity and you know make sure that one person can't scam another that that sort of thing and so um you know to, to what role do you see in, in all the, the adam smith scholarship that you've read um for not not just sort of the market but also the the role of the state the role of institutions i mean i, I do think I, burke is kind of out of style these days i mean i mean burke the, I, the also first, let me just say Smith is a Lockean, except that it's not clear Smith is a traditional Christian. It looks he never writes about Christianity and he uses the language of natural deism, which is, you know, the, the religion that um, Jefferson had and many of the founders had, but is a kind of post Christian naturalist view of um, of religion. However, he really admired Locke. And if you go back into his lectures on jurisprudence, he likes, he does not like absolute monarchy at all. He thinks that um, you cannot have virtue with this lack of freedom, political freedom. And this is, and I agree with him on that one for sure. Um, and it's really interesting. Uh, his, his engagement with Locke is really fascinating. He believes you need uh, a strong parliament, no matter how imperfect it may be. And he says that. But in his lectures on jurisprudence, he talks about the need not only for parliament, but for parliament's imperfections to, that we try to get away from those imperfections by having leaders who are from this agrarian group and who are well-trained in Ciceronian ethics and morals. He doesn't say Christian. He says Ciceronian. And that is interesting. Um, that's really important. He believes in vibrant uh, universities. He is not only a professor, he's an administrator at a university. And so he thinks that good liberal arts education is important. He did not like Oxford because he felt that they were not really doing the right job, that it was too close-minded. He is very much a skeptic. His um, mentor is an atheist. That's Hume. And they were radical thinkers in a lot of ways, these guys. Smith burns his papers when he dies. Uh, I, we Many of us suspect it's because he has a lot of radical writings in there. But what he's already written is still pretty radical um, at the time. So he wants this new economy based on a very strong rule of law parliamentary system, um, but also supported by these major institutions uh, in society. Those institutions are universities, they're salons. He really believes in the importance of leading intellectuals. So when he follows Hume to Paris, uh, uh, when he's tutoring uh, one of his rich patron's uh, sons, who's a duke, he meets all these French economists and they go to salons and they have all these intellectual discussions. So he really believes, and I don't think I wrote enough about this in the book, about the international market of ideas. And he really believes in that. Um, and so, and he believes that this moral training comes from not only the social life, but from university discipline and by taking the liberal arts. And I mean, you know, when I was younger, that was the common idea of why we went to universities and what we did was to sort of get this kind of wide liberal arts moral training to be good citizens and to serve. And remember, Cicero is a moralizing philosopher lawyer who believes that the greatest good is to serve the state. And by the way, that's one of the reasons Smith takes the tax collection job that he does in later life. He believes he's serving 
the state as a moral man and that that is the highest honor you can have. Um, it's really fascinating stuff. Uh, and um, so we, we really have to be careful about not seeing Smith as a modern, but seeing him in his own time and within his own belief system. And I think we can do that. And that's what I hope that the book helps do. Yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of that interesting interesting idea that you know a laissez-faire um, economic system doesn't mean that you have to necessarily minimize the role of the state. Um, but with that, uh, I, I want to come to sort of the the end of the book. Um, one of the the chapters towards the end is called "The End of Virtue: um, Liberalism and Libertarianism." And so now here is where we probably won't see eye to eye. I grew up reading Friedman and Hayek as, as a libertarian. So, um, you know, I, I think there will be some interesting substantive discussion here. So Friedman and, and most libertarians like myself would, would advocate for a state where the extent of state intervention extends just to the protection of civil, civil liberties, national defense and property rights, which includes perhaps correcting market failures. Um, that means no, no bailouts, but also little regulation. So it goes without saying that this is this is far from the economy that we live in today. I mean, from multi-trillion-dollar welfare budgets, huge corporate subsidies, thirty trillion dollars national in, in the national debt. I mean, the government is is larger than ever. So me, like like most Friedman or Hayek-style libertarians, we would prefer a world without any of that state intervention. Um, so I mean, would would you agree? Why or why not? Okay, well, I I don't like the state messing with my affairs. All right, <laughs> I mean, I really I don't like it. Um, I don't like the state telling me what to do, although I do believe that sometimes, you know, with like health issues, um, and my father is a COVID specialist, you know, I think that, and that, you know, we see different societies handle this in different ways, that one of the roles of a state and just a group of people living in a society together, we have to work together for the common good. And that does sometimes mean working as a society and not just in one's individual um, interest. I don't like the state being too involved with things. But here's what my, my book says. I, I admire those guys a lot. One of the things that was so important about them is that they saw the dangers of communism and, the, and a lot of the left missed that. And that was really, really dangerous. Um, wasn't just communism, it was totalitarian government, which scares me today. I mean, I live in fear of people, of a government coming and making, telling me what moral choices to make. And that's something there's a lot of leeway. A lot of people think that taxation is a moral thing. And so there's a lot of, we can argue about that, but I get really sensitive when the state tells me to do too much. So I I'm with you there. I'm with you that they were super visionaries and products of this time of the age of the rise of communism, which led to mass death in the Soviet union and in China. Um, and in many cases also of Nazism of far right, wing totalitarianism. And for that, they are sort of these great moral watchmen who I still think have an enormous amount of value and moral force. Um, when it gets to some of their writings on economics, um, when they say that any state involvement is evil, I think that's extremely problematic. Um, I go to Europe and I go to other countries that have phenomenal national state education systems. And I'm just like, I, I mean, for, you know, public schools. And I say, wow, that is really great. And that, you know, people like um, uh, Ben Franklin believed that was going to be the fundament of the nation where it's going to be great public schools. I don't think that he was wrong. I think that's one of our problems right now. Um, 
The one thing that I've never seen in history, and there are philosophers who argue about this and philosophers in my department at USC who believe that no state can actually ever do good or should try and do good. I've just not seen that. I've seen states do bad. I've seen states do good. But boy, I see states everywhere. And I've never seen an example of the kind of libertarianism that they advocate. Therefore, what I'm proposing in the book, and you don't have to agree with me on this. I I actually, part of me regrets having been polemical in the book because I just want you to see all the historical work that I did and engage with that. But part of me has never seen a point where the state wasn't involved. In 19th century Britain, you had a super free market state, but Britain had its colony and was extracting so much wealth by force from India that it was basically subsidizing a lot of its free market policies, you know, with by the tip of a gun, right? I mean, that wasn't really a free market, the, the British Empire. Um, we see under Reagan massive amounts of um, debt, but also uh, subsidizing of the American economy through huge military contracts. Smith believes that the state has to spend whatever it needs to on defense, but defense means a lot, right? I mean, you can juice your economy with defense spending, and that we do that. Um, and the Cato Institute, by the way, always has these amazing studies of pork barrel stuff, and it's incredible. And there are conservatives and libertarians who are very aware of how military spending can juice economies. Therefore, what I'm saying is I've never seen their ideal in action ever exist, and I feel like we need to move on and say, look, even people who don't like state involvement, since we always seem to have it, we need to design it better. So I guess that was like my conclusion from the book that I, every time I see a free market, I would always see a massive state conditionality to that free market. The question is, what's the best state conditionality? Now, if you take Singapore, which I think is such an interesting place economically, I like to spend time there and study their economy. And I, I work with people involved with their economy. You have very little regulation, and you have the the most favorable place for doing business as far as economic freedom. And yet the state owns a massive chunk of the economy and owns it with wild, incredible success. And I always like to use the example of Singapore Airlines, which is all around probably the best global airline in the world and the most successful. And it's owned by the state holding company, which is I think $444 billion, Temasek, and it's run by the prime minister's sister or daughter. (laughs) I mean, so I don't even know, like, how does a Friedmanite deal with Singapore, which also doesn't have full political and individual freedoms? But So how, how do you deal with that? It's got the most favorable business climate as far as economic freedoms, and yet the state owns a huge chunk of the economy. I kind of just feel like we're constantly presented with these kinds of paradoxes. I think we should be pragmatic and say, we might have these ideals. Let's figure out a way, rather than keep saying, let's get the state out of everything. We know the state's here. Is it possible to have a better state or a better approach within the parameters of the reality that we deal with? Maybe Singapore might be example. I don't know. I don't know. It's a hard question. Well, I mean, if I were a Singaporean citizen, I would be terrified um, because, you know, I, I think that sort of stability is is not real stability. It's a, it's a veneer of stability um, because it's it's a de facto dictatorship. Um, you know, you have the the party saying that if you're uh, that, I mean, it's 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 in practice, it's it's effectively become a one party state. Um, you know, no other party ever has a chance to win win the election. Um, you know, most there, there's, um, you know effective suppression of, of um you know any kind of 
um, other party trying trying to speak out or trying to dislodge the the ruling party, and so that sort of thing I think is great. Um, you know, it provides a lot of stability when when leaders are good, when times are good. But you know, you have one bad era in the party, one one um, you know bad leader, that sort of thing, and and the whole thing just falls apart. There is no there is no challenger, there is no um, accountability, there is no well, some other party is going to win the election, and so. You know, we have to try and stay on top of things. We have to remain corruption free. All, all the sorts of, you know, one party um, states that, I mean, corruption and that sort of thing, that's that's plagued so many one party states. Um, and so, you know, I mean, as 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 much I, as much stability as, as that might provide, I would I would prefer to live in in a real democracy rather than live in a one party dictatorship, no matter how stable. I completely agree with you. And I think that that's very eloquent. I mean. I was actually just speaking in terms of what many business groups and many business measures say about Singapore, but I prefer democracy. I love democracy and I love freedom. And I think you're right. You know, something happens, happens to me all the time right now is a lot of my students say, well, look how corrupt America is and look how much better functioning China is. I think they're wrong on that, but look, but then they'll, they'll use Singapore as an example. Lots of Singaporeans now are fighting for a more democratic system because they're seeing that inherent weakness in a one-party state. And that is Singapore's probably greatest challenge right now. So I think you're completely right. And I think the messiness of democracy uh, and the back and forth, I think it's super important to go back and forth between democratic parties with different ideologies to clean house and to apply different ideas and go back and forth. That's what has worked so well. I believe that works better over time. You can get a rich country in a short period of time with these kind of authoritarian market ideals. But one thing that my studies have shown me, and I don't know if I say this clearly enough in the book, I do say this to my students, I have never seen an authoritarian economy produce large amounts of wealth for more than 70 years or so. Every time you get a 200-year sort of wealth moment, and you'll see that in Holland, this is in modern economies, you'll see it in Great Britain, You'll see it in France and, and, and even in Germany and, and, uh, Japan. Uh, you see in America, you see it happening over long periods of time due to democratic give and take over, you know, with, with some bumps, um, in some of those countries. So I, I agree with you on that completely. But these days, that's seeming to be a very tough sell and that upsets me. Um, I would much prefer again, to have the messiness of democracy, because I've seen historically, not, I don't just believe this, I've seen that it works better over time. I think so, our, our, our best example of this here, um, the, the first thing that comes to my mind when you say 70 years is the longest time that authoritarianism can produce wealth is Mexico. 1929 to, to the year 2000, um, the PRI ruled Mexico. It was a one-party state. And after the uh, 2000 was the first time, uh, I think it was the PRN, um, that, that won the, the election. Um, and since then it's been, it's been, you know, more and more democratic. Um, the, the elections have become more and more democratic. It's a multi proper multi party state now. Um, and, you know, even though it probably doesn't have the same, same stability it had when the PRI was going for 70 years. Um, I, I think there has been tremendous improvements in the standard of living for, for most Mexicans, you know, even the, the messiness that comes alongside that. But I, I don't think there's anyone who would say, you know what, um, we, we ought to go back to, to the time when there was no, no, um, political competition. It was just the, the one party state. 
Again, I, I agree with you. I think that's a very interesting and complex. I think it's gutsy of you to use that example, by the way, because of the problem of the narco state within Mexico. But I do think you're right. And I think we're even seeing Mexico have remarkable dynamism in certain fields. I know that satellites and communications, I mean, I actually know it because a lot of these people are involved with my university here in LA um, because we're so close to Mexico. You see surprising dynamism coming from Mexico. My fear is that in the West or in the more developed countries, there is a temptation for authoritarianism. And I'm just kind of flabbergasted by it. I know things are tough. I know things seem challenging and scary, but boy, it just seems so much more scary under people like Putin. And you see what happens with people like Putin. And Russia's just had a small period where living standards got higher. And then here we are. I mean, it's just their money literally just comes from oil. There's not much else there. It turns out that even the Ukrainians were better at a lot of tech stuff and all their tech people are fleeing anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it, you do not want authoritarianism. You do not want a state that doesn't have turnover and clean out and reform. I think reform historically, this is really where Britain had such an advantage. No matter how you see Britain and lots of people feel a lot of anger at Britain about the empire and all these other things, you still have to value that within British society, there was a certain remarkable amount of liberalism. And the British governmental system in the 18th century starts reforming itself, making massive changes in the structure of its government and its policies. A lot of it had to do with transparency and accounting, which is actually one of my big specialties and the subject of my last book, The Reckoning. Britain was able to change its public accounting and deal with its national debt because it had a, a, a parliament, a semi-open parliamentary political system that could say, hey, we actually need to completely change the way we're governing and managing our debt. And they did that. And that's, I believe, why they were able to keep going and have an industrial revolution. One of the reasons, not the only reason. So I couldn't agree with you more on all of that. And I think people need to re-engage with that history and see how hard it is to do. Democracy is a tough job, but it ultimately always pays off. I, I believe that. Well, I mean, there's there's so much more, um, you know, we we could talk about with with all these ideas. But I mean, we've we've already run a little bit too long. So for now, we'll say those those are all the questions. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Doctor Sol. Thank you much, very much. It was a real real pleasure to have this discussion. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.